This sermon was preached by Caleb Bunch, head pastor and church planner of Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa, New York. Redeeming Grace was planted in 2015 and is seeking to reach central Nassau County with the gospel. You can find sermons from this series and many others at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. My God, I bless you that you have given me the eye of faith, the eye to see you as Father, to know you as covenant God, to experience your love planted in me. For faith is the grace of union by which I spell out my entitlement to you. Faith casts my anchor upward where I trust in you and engage you to be my Lord. Be pleased to live and move within me, breathing in my prayers, inhabiting my praises, speaking my words, moving in my actions, living in my life, and causing me to grow in grace. Your bounteous goodness has helped me believe, but my faith is weak and wavering. Its light is dim, its steps are tottering, its increase is slow, its backsliding frequent. It should scale the heavens, but it lies groveling in the dust. Lord, I pray that you would fan this divine spark into a glowing flame. And when my faith sleeps, my heart becomes an unclean thing. The fount of every loathsome desire, the cage of unclean lust, and all fluttering to escape. Lord, awake faith and put forth its strength until all heaven fills my soul and all impurity is cast out. Amen. In this section of the book of Mark, what we have been seeing is that Jesus is teaching us through miracles. Previously, he has taught us through parables. He has uh, taught us truths about the kingdom of heaven through the parables. Now, he is teaching us truths about himself through miracles. First, we saw him perform a miracle in chapter uh, 4, where he calms the sea. They're out in the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and everyone is terrified. These disciples are afraid that they're going to die. And Jesus simply says, peace, be still, and nature at his word, has to comply. He has all divine authority and power over nature. Then, the very next morning, he arrives in a graveyard on the shore of the garrison, and he comes into contact with a man who is full, not of a demon, but an army of demons, a legion of demons. And he speaks to the demons, and he tells them to go, and they must immediately obey. They have no power or authority over him. He is fully in charge. And today we're going to see Jesus display his divine power and authority over life, in particular over disease and death. Now you might be here and say, I've never been on the ocean in a storm. In fact, I'm not even sure that I've ever experienced a really challenging metaphorical storm. I've had an easy life. I've had an easy go of things. And maybe you're saying, look, I've never, been, I've never been filled with a demon, much less a legion of demons. So maybe these things don't apply so much to me. But now we get to disease and death. And let me tell you, the curse of sin extends to every person. It is the most infectious disease that has ever been on this planet. Sin affects all of us. And every one of us from birth has been infected. And because of that sin, we experience something that God did not design in the original creation. And that is sickness and disease and death. And today we are going to see Jesus conquer them because he shows that he still has divine authority and power over not only nature and the spiritual world, but also over 
life and death. The main character of the story is Jesus. Mark's desire is to show us Jesus, but today we have two characters, these other major figures that are introduced into the story. And there's two reasons why Mark brings these characters into the narrative. The first one is the same reason that any good storyteller brings in peripheral characters. The reason that they do this is not to teach you more about these other characters, it's to teach you more about the hero. And here what we are seeing when Jesus is coming into contact with these other people, we are seeing the greatness of Jesus as he displays his compassion, his love, his mercy, his power to these people, these characters that we will see in the story. We call this the incarnational ministry of Jesus. He came to earth to live among us. God made manifest. Let me show you an incredibly rich passage that displays this truth. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. It's, or 8 through 10, actually. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about your Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, Paul speaking, but share in sufferings for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, here's where I want you to listen carefully. Because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. When did he give it to us? Before the ages began. But, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, that is an incredibly rich passage that deserves ten sermons on its own. But what I want you to see from that is that God's love for his people has never changed. His love is eternally set, and his affections eternally set on his people, yet it was made manifest in the appearing of Christ. And when Jesus comes into contact with our two characters that we are going to see today, his love is shown. He, he is showing the manifestation of the character traits of God. And every recorded interaction of Jesus in the Gospels helps us to see more clearly Jesus displaying the very character of God. So, that's our first reason that Mark's bringing in these characters for us. The second reason that Mark brings these characters for us to see today is so that we might see the proper response to divine power and authority. So that we might see the proper way to respond to Jesus, and that is with faith. So because this is the central point of the text today, I'm going to actually spend a long, a long period of time uh, with this sermon giving an introduction, because I want to define faith for you. I want to help you understand what we should think when we think the word faith. Because faith is incredibly important, right? It's the central part of Christian living. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without it, you cannot please God. We need to understand what faith is. But in our English language, the word faith has been hijacked. It has been kidnapped and it is made to mean something that the Bible never intended it to mean. So, the best acknowledgement that I've ever heard of this, by the way, was by a man named Philip Jensen. He's a, a minister from Australia. Uh, he, he's a retired pastor. He's written many books. Uh, but I heard him speak at Together for the Gospel uh, last month in Kentucky. And during a panel session, they were asking a question. He was asked, tell me, what's the difference between doing evangelism now as opposed to when you started doing evangelism back in the 60s. And here's his quote. He says, 
as the intelligentsia of our community have turned their backs on all things concerning God, all of the categories of thought that we have are no longer available to us. Let me explain. It has come now to the point that in Australia, sin means a religious view that is against sex. Faith means superstition. Repentance means feeling sorry. And justification means rationalization. So if you preach justification by faith alone for your sins, no one will understand you. We need to know what faith is. You see, in the Bible, the word for faith and the word for believe are actually one word. But in English, we don't have a noun and a verb form for faith, so we have to create the word believe and use that. Uh, Philip Jensen actually argued that we should use the words trust or rely or depend because those more fully inhabit the meaning of what this original word faith means. I'm going to try to define faith for you this morning, and because C is my favorite letter of the alphabet, for good reasons, I'm going to use that as my uh, key letter to alliterate for you. The first thing that you must have in order to have genuine biblical faith is cognition. And what that means is you have to know the truth of the gospel. Somebody has to have told it to. No one can have faith in Christ unless they first hear about Christ. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So the first step is they must have it in their mind. But the second C is confirmation. You must confirm those truths. In other words, it's not enough to know the facts. There are a lot of atheists who know the facts. You have to agree with them. You have to say, yes, that's true. What we were doing earlier today when we were going through the Nicene Creed is we were confirming, we were agreeing, yes, these things about Jesus are, are true. I believe in the historical Jesus. I believe that the, he is eternal and that the Trinity has existed in loving relationship with one another forever. I believe in the incarnation and the virgin birth. I believe that Jesus lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death and was raised on the third day and he lives to be our Savior and he has sent the Holy Spirit for the purpose of living in the hearts of all who believe. Now, there are many people who believe these statements are true. They, they believe, yes, I agree that Jesus died on the cross and that he, he did all these things that I just mentioned. But some of the people who do know this and agree in their mind will still be in hell. Because faith is more than intellectual assent. It is more than knowledge. It includes mental agreement. You have to have mental agreement, but it is by no means limited to mental agreement. Let me explain by giving you the third C, and that is confidence. And this, by the way, is what most people think of when they think of faith. When we use the word faith, most of the time people think you mean you have confidence that something is going to happen based on some superstition. They don't believe that you have reasons to have confidence. But true faith is confident in what Christ has said and what Christ has done. So let me give you a few examples of false understandings of faith here. First, I'll give you the, the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche's definition of faith. Frederick Nietzsche said, Faith is not wanting to know what is true. You can observe it, but you just don't want to know it. So you believe something different than what you see. But that is essentially the exact opposite of what faith is. Real biblical faith is being cognizant of the truth, having heard the gospel, 
about Jesus, confirming those facts about Jesus in your mind, and then being confident that you are now right with God because of what Jesus has done. These core elements of faith are all bound together and inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. Faith is rooted in truth. And that is where we see the cognizance and the, <clears throat> and the confirmation. Uh, Finally, I want to give you another quote here from somebody who misunderstood faith. And that's a famous pastor. His name is Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen says it this way. And you should immediately begin to see when I read that there's some flaws theologically. He says, God has already done everything that he's going to do. The ball is now in your court. If you want success, if you want wisdom, if you want to be prosperous and healthy, you're going to have to do more than meditate and believe. You must boldly declare words of faith and victory over yourself and your family. According to this statement, what you have faith in is not Jesus Christ at all. And it's not God. God's already done what he's going to do. Now, you are the one that you have to believe in. You have to have faith in yourself. And the object has now moved from where it should be, which is the person of Jesus Christ, and moved to yourself, which is an act what the biblical word would be here is idolatry. That is what he is promoting. Statements like these should be completely rejected by all true Christians. The question is, what is the object of your faith? In this statement, he's revealing the object is a confidence in yourself. In the power of yourself. But what is the anchor of your faith? What are you trusting in? The old adage of the chair is one that people often speak of when they speak about faith. Right now, you're all sitting down. I'm the only one standing. And you're sitting there, and until I mentioned your chair, you were sitting there totally believing that your chair was going to uphold you. And you weren't even thinking about it. You just had accepted in your mind, I am sitting here and I believe because I have empirical evidence of some sort that this chair is going to uphold me. And you have put your faith in that chair to uphold you. Confidence in God without cognition of the gospel and without confirmation of the gospel is just superstition. If you believe God is going to do something, for example, those people who say, I'm stepping out in faith, but you're not basing that on the word of God, the revealed character of God, or the person of, or work of Jesus Christ, then you are not having genuine biblical faith. Rather, what you are having is superstition. Biblically, faith is not about health. Faith is not about wealth or family or success or even wisdom. Faith means that we have believed in the good news of Jesus Christ and that he has made us right with God through his own death on the cross. And so that's what we want to understand here. That's the third C, confidence. Now we're going to go to the fourth C, which is conformation. Okay? So the second C is confirmation. You're confirming. The final C is conformation, which is conforming. You're becoming like Jesus Christ. True faith always results in a lifestyle of obedience. That's not perfect obedience. You and I can't perform perfectly before God. But it does mean progressive sanctification. It means that over a period of time, you can look at a Christian's life and say, that person is more like Jesus now than they were a year ago. And you can see growth, and you can see them overcoming temptation and sin. But now we have to be very careful. We have to be really careful here. Because if we're not careful, we'll become legalists. Let me explain. Faith is not works. Faith and works are different things, and we have to remember there is a wall dividing those things. 
But real faith means that you will begin orienting your life towards Jesus. So if we, if we understand faith rightly, real faith necessarily results in a heart change. If you really have faith in Christ and trust in Christ, it results in a heart change. And a heart change results in a life change. James says it this way in James 2.17. He says, So also, faith by itself, if it, if it does not have works, is dead. Do you have a dead faith? If there's no actions, if there's no growth, if there's never anything that we can see that you have grown to be more like Jesus Christ over the period of your, of your Christian walk, then maybe that faith is dead. He also says in verse 20 that a faith apart from works is useless. And he makes a challenge in verse 18 saying, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. But faith and works are different, but genuine faith always has observable fruit. Okay? The early church father, Tertullian, he puts it this way. He said, you can judge the quality of someone's faith by the way they behave. Again, true faith results in good works. But faith precedes obedience. Love for Christ precedes obedience. Jesus says in John 14, 15 and John 15, 14, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. He doesn't say, if you know me, or have an intellectual understanding of me, but if you love me, faith involves love. The way you are orienting your life towards Christ is not merely, oh, I see that this is the most powerful person, so I will align myself here. No, it is a, an orientation of love towards the Savior. And therefore, you result, your life results in obedience. <clears throat> so, let's recap here. Faith is cognition about the gospel, including confirmation of the gospel, agreement with that truth, and confidence in the gospel that Christ has died for you and therefore you are right before God, not because of yourself, but because of Christ. And finally, conformation to gospel-driven life. You begin to look more like Jesus. If any one of these four aspects of faith are missing, then your faith is either incredibly weak and in desperate need of great care, or it's illegitimate. So we need to know what faith is. Hopefully that's helpful in, in, in building your categorization, your doctrine of faith. Now what we're going to do today is, is with this text is we're going to break it up into three parts. This, this is a beautiful story, and the way that Mark tells it is incredible. It's almost like a stage play with three acts. So today that's how we're going to consider it. We've got Act 1, we have Act 2, and Act 3. Remember before we've talked about the Markin sandwich. And what he's going to do is he's going to start you out in Act 1 talking about Jairus this man who's the leader of the synagogue. And then in, in chapter 2, that story is interrupted in Act 2 by this woman who has a disease. And then finally in Act 3, we go back to the story of Jairus. So that's how we will consider this passage today. And what we'll do is, as we go through almost a running commentary, I'm going to make application as we go. So look with me at Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her so that she might be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Let's pause here. What do we know about Jairus? Let's get a character study here. Who is this guy, Jairus? 
Well, first, he's a ruler of the synagogue. That's a really important position in Israel. Remember, the synagogue is their Saturday, their Sabbath gathering where they would come together once a week and they would worship as a community. This guy's in charge of keeping the scrolls where the the word of God, he's in charge of keeping them cleaned and organized and protected. He is in charge of making sure the building stays in good shape. He is in charge of finding who is going to speak at each and every week's gathering. He is in charge of praying. He is in charge of teaching the children of the community about the Old Testament and the law. That's what a synagogue ruler does. They are well thought of in society. They are usually people who are quite wealthy and can afford not to work in another job. And oftentimes the rulers of the synagogue, one of them was paid and the rest of them were basically there because they had servants doing work for them and they could afford to spend time working in the synagogue because they don't have to work in another physical job. It's interesting because Jairus is is called by name here. Now remember, the reason that we have the information that we do is not because Mark was there, but because Peter was there, and Peter relayed this information to Mark, who has written it down for you. So what we're seeing in this story is from Peter's angle following Christ. Now, it's possible, because this is Peter's hometown, that this is a person Peter knew. And scholars and theologians think that this might be the person who trained Peter in the law who taught Peter the Old Testament. This might be the guy who had taken him literally to school. If not, at least this is the synagogue where Peter would worship. And he would have known him from that angle, as someone who he respected as a religious authority in his life before Peter met Christ. This man is a man of authority. He is a devout religious man. He's highly involved in the community. He is well thought of by outsiders. He is a man of honor. He's a man of means. But he's a man who is desperate. And he's desperate because his daughter is sick. And so sick that she is probably going to die. I have one daughter. Her name is Petra. Many of you know her. She's three. This little girl is 12, but it doesn't matter. It's his daughter. Can you imagine your child being that sick? Maybe you can. Maybe you've been there. Where you have a child who is just about on the edge of life. And it is terrifying. We talked about the sea and, and these sailors are afraid, these disciples and fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, these people are afraid for their life. They're afraid they're going to die. That doesn't compare to being afraid your child is going to die. Here, Jairus is desperate. And notice what he does. Remember last time Jesus was in Capernaum in the synagogue, in this man's synagogue? Do you remember what he did? He healed a man with a withered hand. And from that point on, the Pharisees sought to conspire against him with the Herodians. From that point on, the Pharisees decided, we need to kill this man, Jesus. Jairus is part of that synagogue. He's not one of the Pharisees. But his entire religious establishment that is around him has rejected Jesus, and now he is going in complete rebellion against what his society is doing, rejects the religious establishment of the Pharisees, and runs to Jesus and falls at his feet. His community had rejected Jesus, and he turns his back on them. I'd also like you to see the, um, the, the word here that he uses, that he falls down at his feet. In, in, in this passage, in Mark, the Greek just says that he fell down. And you could use that as stumbled even. He, he just fell down there at his feet. The word used in Matthew in the Greek is 
proskuneo, which means that he worshipped him. It's not merely that this man came and got down on the ground. He actually was worshipping Jesus at this point and declaring, Jesus, I need you and I need your help to come heal my daughter. Jairus, at this point, is already displaying all four aspects that I mentioned before about faith. All four C's are being displayed in his life. He knows the truth about Jesus. He agrees with the facts about Jesus. And he has gone so far as to possibly lose his job because he has uh, believed, he has agreed not only in, a, in, a, in an intellectual sense, but he has gone so far as to live it out. And he is confident that Jesus Christ can do something. And he conforms to what Jesus Christ tells him to do. So what, what do we learn about Jesus here in these verses? First, it's very simple. We see that Jesus went with him. And, and that can sound like, okay, big deal. We know this story. But that is a big deal. Think about it. Jesus is a busy guy. Jesus is constantly swarmed with people. Jesus has many different aspects of his ministry that he needs to be involved in. And a man comes to him who is part of a religious establishment that has rejected him. And this man, who by all intents and purposes you could look at and say, that's, that's a person that should not probably, uh, Jesus probably won't listen to him. Jesus says, okay, I'll go with you. And he follows him. Not because Jesus is being commanded, but because Jesus is loving. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 tells us to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. Application 1, pray about everything. Pray with a heart of faith. Pray in difficult things. Pray in easy things. Pray that God is going to work in those things. God hears our prayers, and he is pleased to answer them. Application number two here is that Jairus, he could have avoided coming to Jesus. He could have done that because he knew that doing so would destroy his reputation with his community. He could have done that, but he doesn't. Instead, he knows that the most important thing is not his society, not... He could have lost his job over this. We don't know what happens to Jairus. But we know that in this instance, he does not perceive that to be the most important issue. The most important issue is his daughter's life. Now, here in this room, your most important issue is not your daughter's life. Your most important issue is your soul. If you come to Christ, and for those of you who have come to Christ, you'll know this, you don't have to reject society. I mean, you do, but you don't have to. They reject you. It comes very quickly. When you turn and orient yourself to Christ, immediately you're turning your back to the world. And the world knows that, and they respond to that very negatively. Jesus says, if they hate me, they're going to hate you too. Why should we expect to be treated better than they treated Christ, our Savior? Your reputation is not more valuable than your eternal destiny. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, we're going to talk a lot to you this morning. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is what is most important. It is most important that you turn to him, not all the other things that might hold you back. So trust in Christ. If you want to know more about that, I'm going to be right back there at the end, and I want to talk to you about him. Just to close that thought, I'm encouraging you to trust in Christ because if you're more con concerned about your reputation or your job or your friends or your family, then what you've done is you've erected an idol and you've set that idol on the throne of your heart where only Christ deserves to sit. So let's close there, Act 1. Curtains down, raise them back up, scene chains, Act 2. Look with me again now to verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 
and who suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Let's stop there and examine what we know about this woman. First, she's diseased. I can't... I mean, this woman had been suffering. The word suffering, I don't even know if that... If that's enough to say here, this is an understatement. This woman had been experiencing this discharge of blood for 12 years. That is alone. If we didn't hear anything else that I'm about to say, that enough is worth being pitied. But it's necessary to understand more about what this would mean culturally to this woman in her day and age. This, it's important that we understand, socially speaking, what this means for her. According to the law of God that was given in Leviticus, which was read earlier by Rocky... This woman was unclean, that she was set apart from society. She was to be rejected because she was considered unclean until she could be made clean again. But you had to be rid of this for seven days before you could be declared clean. It has been 12 years of uncleanness. Now, because she was unclean, she was not allowed to go to public places where she is right now. In this story, she's not allowed to be there. She's not allowed to go into public. She's got to love her family from a distance. She would have been an outcast in the social pariah. Even more than that, this disease was usually considered to be punishment from God. And we see that occurring sometimes in the Gospels, how, how the world classifies it and views sickness and sin and blindness and things like that. This disease particularly was considered to be a punishment from God. So you could probably compare this if you want to look at a, a comparison nowadays to how some people will respond when an individual tests positive for HIV or AIDS, there's an immediate question there in the minds of the society. There must be some sin, right? And that's what we see happening. When anybody meets this woman, they believe her to be evil because of this disease that is in her. Moreover, and I think this is the most significant thing here, she is separated from worshiping God in a community. She cannot go to the temple. She cannot go to the synagogue. She cannot worship with other people because she is unclean. That, my friends, would be so hard to continue to honor God and seek after God alone and not be able to worship with others. In verse 34, the word that Jesus uses for this disease is actually the word that is scourge or whip. It's the same word that they whip Jesus with the scourge. That's the word Jesus uses when he references her disease. This is not a small thing. This has drastically destroyed and afflicted her life. It has caused extensive harm to her body, to her community, to her ability to worship God with others, to her family, and much more. It's devastated her. And we also see now, the second thing I'd like to point out about her, she's destitute. She's got nothing. Apparently, at one point in her life, she had money, she had means. Now that's all gone. And where did it go? It went to the doctors. Now, medical science has improved significantly since this time. Doctors back then were terrible. I just, there's so many different bizarre and peculiar and unhelpful superstitious ideas that they had about what could heal this particular sickness. And most of them are so off the wall and disgusting, I'm not going to mention them. But here's just one example. They would tell a woman like this, with this particular disease, if you want to be healed, here's what you do. You follow her around a donkey, you wait till they release their excrement, and then you dig through it to find a white piece of barley kernel that has passed through the body of that donkey without being digested. And then you carry that around with you. And it'll heal you. 
I don't have a lot of time to talk about this this morning, but I mean, that's messed up. How do they come up with medicine? You have to think how many times they had to try the wrong thing before they got the right thing, you know? This is pretty disgusting. You, why on earth do you think that's going to help her? And how many donkeys do you have to follow around before this occurs? I don't know donkeys, and I definitely have never done this, so maybe it's normal, maybe it happens all the time. But this is the kind of stuff she's spending money on. They're writing prescriptions like this. And obviously, they don't help her. And obviously, when all of her money is gone, her options have become exhausted. No doctor can help her. She's hopeless. She is helpless. Notice also that she's basically the exact opposite, in many ways, of Jairus. Jairus is given a name in the story. She's not. We have no idea who she is. We don't have a record of her historically. What is her name? He is an esteemed man, and she is shamed. He's an elite member of society, and she is literally the lowest, set apart from society. He enjoyed 12 years of love with his daughter. She's enjoyed 12 years of torment from her disease. He's wealthy. She's destitute. He's a worship leader. She's banned from public worship. These people are opposites in many ways. But they have one thing in common, that's both of them need Jesus. Now let's observe more about this woman and her faith, starting in verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even the garment, his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now let's try to get a picture of what's going on here. I, w- I want to set the scene a little bit better for you. Act 2 takes place in the middle of Capernaum. Now these Galilean cities, they were tight. They were, they were crammed together. And if you've seen pictures or videos or, or paintings or renderings of this, then you know what I'm talking about. The streets were narrow, and your front door would open right onto the street. And they were intentionally made narrow so that few soldiers could get through them together. Or so that an attacking person, would they're not straight and organized like ours. You don't want to have a grid system when an army comes in. You want them to be confused and walking in circles, and the people who know the city know how to get out quickly. You don't want a chariot to be able to go down a residential area, so what you do is you make the streets narrow enough that a chariot and horse cannot get through them. But there's at least 13 people, if you just include Jesus' posse, trying to walk down these narrow streets. Not to mention the large crowd that it has mentioned that is following him. Now, these people are probably zigzagging throughout Capernaum. They're trying quickly to to go around the shortcuts that they know to get in front of Jesus and, and find him. And Jairus is just trying to lead him in the right direction. And everybody's banging into each other and bumping into each other. And the disciples are probably serving as pseudo bodyguards trying to keep people from getting too close up close and personal with Jesus here. This is a tight, uncomfortable space. And Jairus is probably trying to move quickly because he knows his daughter is at the verge of death. He wants to get to his house as quickly as possible. He is probably really seeking to hurry them along. And then this happens. This woman comes who has a disease. She gets down, presumably on the ground. There's no other real simple way for her to get to this this place. And she touches, the word here is actually in Greek, the tassels of his robe these little strings that were hanging down off the edge of his robe this is an incredible visual occurrence the instant that she touched him the instant she touched him 
She felt in her body she was healed. She knew it was instantaneously, instantaneously effective. Do you see, though, her faith? Do you see her faith in this story? She is not being superstitious here. Some people have criticized the Bible and said, I thought you said faith wasn't superstitious. She thinks that touching some suit of clothing is going to help her get well. No. Notice that she has this, this faith in her. Notice the four aspects of it. She's cognizant of who Jesus is. In verse 27, it tells us she had heard the reports about Jesus. And obviously, we know that she mentally confirmed those things. How do we know that? Because she was willing to break the law that she was willing to go into a crowd of people, even though she was unclean, in order to get near him. And she is confident in Jesus, and we see that in her actions. And so much so that she says, I don't even have to touch him. And she's probably thinking this compassionately, right? Like, I don't want to touch him because that's, that's even going farther. Like, if I, I, if I touch his clothes, maybe he won't be unclean as much if I just touch his, his, his tassels on his robe. I don't even have to touch him. His power is strong enough that it can even work if I just touch the hem of his garment. She's confident. And finally, she's conformed by what she knows. In the Bible, genuine faith starts with hearing, but it always results in action, right? And we see that occurring here with her. And we see it especially after she is healed, not just in the action of being healed. But we see it after because Jesus calls out for her. And when it would have been, you know, if she was trying to avoid being punished, she could just run away. But she doesn't. Jesus calls out to her and she makes herself known. And she does. She's willing to do whatever he tells her to do. And that's key here. We see all four aspects of faith clearly presented in her life. This woman has genuine faith. And we know that also because Jesus commends her for it. Not only can we see it in Mark's account, we can also see it because Jesus has seen it personally. Notice verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. I'd like to make three short observations here. First, <clears throat> Jesus is here. He perceives power has gone out from his body. <clears throat> power has left him. Now, there's a lot of questions people ask about that. And it's, it's something that I think people misunderstand. And so I want to just clarify a little bit here. When Jesus perceives that power has gone out of him, he's not like a battery that needs to be recharged. He does not have limited power. So when power goes out of him, it does not mean that he has to go pray until he refills it or that he needs to just wait until the Father sends him more power. No, he is fully God. He has infinite power and authority. At that moment, when he healed her, he's also upholding the entire universe by the word of his power. No, he does not lose energy. But he feels it go out of him. And this is being told to us not to say that Jesus' power is finite, but rather that his power is personal. He doesn't heal abstractly. Healing is not impersonal in the Bible. Every time he heals somebody, what he's doing is he is showing personal kindness to them. This is not a magical force. It is not some prestidigitation. It is not sorcery. This is Jesus being compassionate. And what I truly believe is occurring here is that Jesus 
purposefully, purposefully and intentionally healed her through this action. And what we are going to see next is he asks the question, who touched my garments? Who touched me? Now, the disciples are probably very uncomfortable right now. Like we mentioned, this is a crowded space. They don't like where they're at, and they just want to get to their destination. And the disciples look at Jesus like he's crazy. They should know by now, right? They just experienced two of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever performed in his life. They should know by now. If Jesus said it, then something's going on. Just probably Peter's talking right here. Just close your mouth, Peter. But they say, "Who? You? are you serious? Everybody's touched you. That's essentially what they're saying. You think somebody touched you? Point, point at somebody. Yeah, of course they touched you. That person touched you. That person touched you. Everyone here has touched you, Jesus. They can't get enough of you. But Jesus knew who he was speaking to. He was speaking to one person. He was speaking to the woman. And she was the only one there who was not supposed to touch him. She's the only one there who's unclean. But I want you to see that Jesus knew who touched her. This is not a shocking thing to Jesus. He's not surprised. He hasn't lost what's going on. We, I, I, I know this because Jesus has already shown us that when he's in a crowd, he can read the thoughts of everyone in the crowd. When Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, he looks at the people and he says, why have you thought in your hearts these evil things? They didn't even say anything. He just knows. In this instance, it's, Reminiscent of when God is in the garden and he's looking for Adam and Eve and he says, where are you? Does he know where they are? Yes, he knows where they are. So why does he ask this question? That's what we should want to know here. Why does he ask the question? If Jesus is fully God, he's fully aware of what's happening here. Why does he ask, who touched me? I believe that the answer is, he is giving her a chance to display obedience and faith. So let's look at verse 33 and see how this plays out. But the woman, knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now this woman knew she was healed. She knew it. And she knew that Christ had repaired her body. So why is she afraid? Well, as what we've already mentioned, she is absolutely forbidden to touch anybody, but especially a rabbi. This is a big deal. She has gone and touched the teacher. And now that teacher, who is supposed to be the religious authority, has become ceremonially unclean, right? No, that's not what happens. We'll see that more uh, more later on. But here what I want you to see is that Jesus could have pressed charges against her. He could have followed followed the lawsuit against her. He could have actually had this woman uh, punished by the law. He could have condemned her just verbally before everyone he could have lashed out against her she doesn't know what's going to happen so she comes in fear for christ but instead of that jesus calls her out he gives her the opportunity to share her testimony before the whole crowd do you see that jesus says hey who touched me and then she comes forth and she tells her testimony instead she tells the whole truth And I love that statement. That's what a testimony should be. It should be the whole truth. It should be, I was in a devastating position. My life was destroyed. And in our case, it was destroyed because of our own sin. But Christ saved me. And he healed me in an instant. Here he gives her a chance to declare the goodness of God 
when she comes forth and declares what God has done for her. So instead of rejecting her or accusing her, he blesses her. And this is so precious. It is literally the only time in the New Testament that Jesus ever calls anyone his daughter. He says, daughter. That is beautiful. This woman who has been probably ostracized from her entire family for 12 years, he looks at her with compassion and says to her, you're my daughter. Now I have a daughter and there are a lot of little girls in this church, and I care for them, I love them. I don't call them my daughter. That is a special word. He looks at her and he says, daughter. That is beautiful. We see the compassion of Jesus in that one special word. But Jesus commands her, commends her faith, and he tells her to go in peace. This woman had no peace for 12 years, and he tells her, go, now you have peace. Not just temporary peace, he gives her actual, genuine, real, internal peace. And there's something truly beautiful in this part of the passage that shines through in, in the Greek language. It just doesn't come through very well in English. And I'd like to note that for you. And it's when, when he says to her that she is healed. The word healed is actually the word sozo, which in the rest of the New Testament is used to mean saved. You have been saved, right? But he doesn't say you have been. He says, be healed of your affliction. Be healed of your disease. Or, if we're going to take the literal rendition of it, be saved from your disease or affliction. That is a beautiful picture. Go in peace, be saved of your affliction. This is almost definitely a statement that Mark intends to have a double meaning here. Your sickness is gone, you've been saved from it, but so is your sin. And even if Mark doesn't intend it to mean that for her, it definitely does mean that for us. If you come to Christ, your sin is gone. And now you have genuine peace with Christ. So hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it. Now let's close the curtain once again and raise it back up for Act 3. We're now turning away from the story of the woman. That story has closed. We are moving back to the story of Jairus. Now the focus has been on her. And what a joyful focus, right? Everyone's excited. The crowd is probably rejoicing. But now let's look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther? Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine the heartbreak of Jairus? He's been trying to rush Jesus to get there. Maybe if we just got there a little faster, maybe if we just got there a little sooner. She was so close. We were just a few blocks away and you had to stop because this woman touched you. And you had to talk to her. You had to hear the whole truth from her. We don't know what his heart was like at that moment, but I know one thing. The heart of a father would break. It's devastating. His sadness is surely overwhelming at this point because it's not just that he, had, he his daughter had died. It's that he had his hopes as high as they could be. The one who heals sick people is here, and he's coming. His hope is high. And then as he's watching Jesus heal this woman, he gets the message. Your daughter's dead. And hope crashes to the floor. Jairus is probably subscribing to the words of Stephen Hawking that Stephen Hawking is known for saying, which, to be honest, I think he actually borrowed from an earlier English writer, but... The words, where there is life, there is hope. He's probably thinking now that there is no life, there is no hope. He is hopeless. But Jesus is going to show that Jairus and Stephen Hawking are dead wrong. 
Verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. So I can just imagine. It says that they came and talked to Jairus. While Jesus is still talking to the woman, they're talking to Jairus. And then Jesus immediately turns to him and says, Do not fear, only believe. Jesus knows the message that he had just received. But Jesus says, Do not fear, only believe. In other words, trust me. Don't trust everything else. Don't trust the medical uh, result that you've been given. Don't, don't trust the messengers. Trust in me. It seems that Jairus does trust Jesus because he continues to lead Jesus to his house. And he sees him all the way there. Look at verse 37. <clears throat> and he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James, which, by the way, these are the guys who are from Capernaum, FYI. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother to those who were with him and went in where the child was. This seems like a bizarre scene, right? This looks crazy because we are used to these very sterile environments for death. We are used to hospitals where the only people there are sad family members and solemn medical staff. Now, that's not the, the picture we see here at Jairus' house. In those days, it was a custom that you would have mourners, professional criers and flute players who would come. They even had a, a, a statement made about 100 years after this that even the poorest of the people should have at least two flute players and one, one wailing woman to be there when there's a death in the family. You're supposed to pay people to come help you mourn through this process. These people were professionals. This is their job. And Jairus is wealthy, so there's probably not just two flute players and a wailer. There's probably a lot. That's why it says there's a commotion here. These people are experienced with death. They know when someone's dead. And just like before, Jesus gets rebuked for his words. Before he said, who touched my garment? And the disciples look at him like he's crazy. Here he says, oh, she's not dead. She's sleeping. And immediately everyone laughs. These people's job is to cry. And we know it's not real crying because as soon as he says something, they laugh. And I don't know if it was hysterical laughter or if it was more of a laughter of, who do you think you are? You're telling me that she's just asleep? Look, buddy, I've done three of these this morning. I know when a guy's dead. That little girl is dead. And Jesus puts them out. I love that Jesus just takes charge of this situation. The parents who are grieving in this scenario, the mother and father are involved. He puts everyone else outside the house, takes his three disciples that he has with them, takes the parents, and imagine them walking back into that room with the dead body of this little girl. She's laying there. And just imagine that picture. And now, as we do that, I, I want to just note something about death. Some people look at this and say, was this girl really dead? Because Jesus said she's not really dead. Jesus said that she's sleeping. Back in the Enlightenment era, especially in Germany, a lot of the people who were anti-miracle used this as a proof text. And they said, oh, the miraculous parts of the Bible are never really miracles. They're just kind of made to look that way so that we, we get a good idea. There's truth in the Bible, but the whole Bible is not true. The miracles are not real. They're just supposed to teach us a lesson. And here they would say, see, there's evidence. 
everyone thought she was dead, but Jesus says she's just asleep. No, I think that it's pretty clear that she's actually dead. Everyone's aware that she's dead. But what's happening here is when Jesus says she's only sleeping, is something that Jesus says, and we see Paul regularly doing this, when somebody is going to the grave, but they are coming back up, it is not referred to as death. It is referred to as sleeping. Paul does this consistently. And those who have gone to sleep, well, who in the church is asleep? Just wake them up. No, they're, they're actually dead. They're, Paul's talking about dead people there. So when we talk about this, Jesus is not saying this girl has not passed from life. What he is saying is she's going to wake back up. And that's the key for us to see. He is speaking about it because this is only a temporary state. Just as believers are raised back to eternal life, this little girl is raised to physical life. Let me, see, let me show you what that looks like here in verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Now, look at the compassion of Jesus. We've seen this already with the, with the first woman that we, we talked to, but, but remember that picture of Jesus entering into the room with a dead girl? I can just see Jesus getting down on his knees and grabbing the hand of this little, this little girl. And, and then he says these precious words. He says to her, Talitha Kumi. The word Talitha, is a, it's a, it means little girl. I say to you, arise, right? That's what the, this phrase means. But the word little girl there, it's an idiom. It, it's something closer to what we would use in English as, as sweetheart or darling. It's a word that mothers would use when they're tucking in their children for bed. It literally can be translated, my little lamb. And he says to this little girl, my little lamb, I say to you, arise. Notice that death has no ability to hold her back. She is gone, but now Jesus says to her, arise, and immediately it occurs. Death is terrifying. Every one of us in this room are going to experience that. I, I know there are some people who have told me that they don't fear death. I don't know if I believe that or not. Maybe, they, maybe they've escaped that terror. I don't believe it, though. I, I, I think that everyone, when they come to that door into the next life they they're scared and there's reason because death is terrifying the book of job puts it this way in chapter 18 verse 14 it says death is the king of all terrors but this is the king of kings and the king of terrors has no hope against the king of kings first corinthians chapter 15 verse 26 calls death the last enemy to be destroyed but it is an enemy that will be destroyed and it is going to be destroyed by christ jesus has all authority to bring this girl back to life please allow us, allow me to close this morning with just three simple applications first jesus makes the unclean clean now i've skirted around this for weeks but it's very important. Now, I, I want to land here a little bit this morning. The woman with the issue of blood and the dead girl both would have made Christ ceremonially unclean. According to the law of the Old Testament, the law that God had given, not some pseudo-scientific law, some crazy social structure that the, the Pharisees had made. The actual law of God in the Old Testament in Leviticus declares that these things should have made him unclean, but they do not make him unclean. Because instead of making Jesus unclean, Jesus makes both of them clean by removing the cause of their uncleanness. And that is an incredible picture. 
Jesus always, every time he comes in contact with the unclean, purifies. The reason why he's able to do that, and this is, this is central, the reason why he can make unclean things clean is because he actually took all that uncleanness on himself. And he bore it on his body, in his body, on the tree. When he was on the cross, what he was doing is he was carrying all of the disgusting, sinful thoughts, actions of every one of us in this room who is saved and every person who ever has been or ever will be saved. And he has placed them on his shoulders. He has carried them and paid for them at the cross. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are unclean. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6 says that even your best righteous works are like unclean, filthy rags, just as unclean as the rags produced by the woman's disease in this story. That's the word that's being utilized there in the Hebrew. But Christ has come to make unrighteous, unclean people righteous and clean. And he does that by the cross. If you come to Jesus, he can make you clean. You cannot cleanse yourself. Before God, you will always be seen carrying those filthy rags unless Christ, who alone cleanses you. If you want to know more about that, I'm, I'm going to be right back there after the service. I want to talk to you more about how you can come to know Christ and be cleansed by him. Secondly, I would like to apply uh, this text in this way, that God often allows us to go through difficult circumstances and stages of life in order to grow our faith. Jairus' faith was weak. His faith was small. It was on the verge of breaking to pieces when he hears the words that his daughter has died. But at that very moment, Jesus reaches out and says to him, do not fear, only believe. When you're experiencing hardship, whether that's at your job, whether that's in your family, uh, whether that's battling with your body, with cancer, with people who reject you because of your faith, or with society, when they... I mean, this week, I have to tell you, I, I've been amazed at how much society has more and more rejected Christ and anything that aligns itself with a biblical definition, especially of gender. And this week, one of my childhood friends uh, made this so clear to me when he referred to anybody who agrees with a biblical definition of not only marriage, but just gender, basic gender. If you believe in a biblical definition of gender, the words he used is that you are a small-minded troglodyte. That's his insult. There's no actual discussion anymore. There's just a rejection of you if you ascribe to the teachings, clear teachings of the Word of God. And it's going to make you suffer. That's going to be challenging in your jobs, in your, in your families. Uh, it's going to be a hard thing to walk through when the culture rejects us. But God allows us to experience suffering to grow our faith. See, the one in whom you place your trust is completely trustworthy. Jesus is going to make you more like himself. That is the goal. The goal is not that you are going to be comfortable. Jesus could have healed this little girl at the shoreline of Galilee. He could have just said, oh, go home. She's fine. But he used this situation where his heart was broken for the purpose of strengthening his faith. His faith was made so much greater because he experienced the trial of hearing that she had died before Jesus acted. So have faith that God will hold you fast. 
I'm not saying that God is going to make your circumstances easy, but I am going to say that through them, God is able to make your faith stronger. And the final thing that I would like to note today is that it is not death to die. It's a song that we sing. But it's important that we see this. For those who are in Christ, we can be confident that Jesus is going to call out to us, my little lamb, arise. We can be confident that when we close our eyes in death, we will wake them in glory. And we know this because we have an elder brother, Jesus Christ, who has gone to the grave before us. He has tasted death, and he has come out victorious from the grave. We have a future. We have a hope of future glory. As the song says, death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I am so grateful for this incredible text. I'm I'm thankful for the series that we've had so far in the book of Mark. I'm thankful that in every way you work in our lives to grow our faith if we are truly in you. Lord, I pray for those who are here that know you. I pray that you would strengthen our faith and make us more like Christ. And for those that do not know you, I pray that you would give them saving faith. Lord, we know that faith is a gift. And we pray that you would give that gift to those who do not know you in this room. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.